I wanted a form of transcription and musical notation that explained the musical and artistic priorities of the practitioners, right? Of mm-hmm. the of the DJs at, at the time. And a DJ like Grandmaster Flash wasn't sitting there with staff notation in front of mm. him writing out what he wanted what sounds he wanted to come out of the speakers when he was at his turntables. His his materials, his compositional materials were pre-recorded records, right? Commercial commercially released records. And he would put them on his turntables and manipulate them. So a couple years ago, Kendrick Lamar's Damn won the Pulitzer Prize, and people on the internet went pretty crazy. It's fairly understandable. Lamar was not only the first hip-hop musician to be awarded the Pulitzer in music, but it was also the first time that the award went to an artist outside of classical music and experimental jazz, the first time in a really, really long time that the music Pulitzer went to an actual household name. I don't want to re-litigate any of the more obnoxious commentary online. Perhaps you saw some of the worst of it, these kind of hoity-toity complaints about how rap wasn't actually music because blah blah blah. Someone called the album Incoherent Nasal Yacking. One Facebook post I saw simply stated, This year's music Pulitzer. How insulting. But there was one line of thinking that stood out to me because it was, in theory, in defense of Kendrick Lamar and his music. It went something like this. What makes Damn great is that its technical underpinnings are actually quite similar to those of the masterworks of classical music. A couple commentators even made a convoluted comparison between Lamar's rapping and Arnold Schoenberg's obscure modernist technique of Sprechstimme. They were arguing, in essence, that hip-hop did deserve the Pulitzer, because it can be evaluated with the very same criteria with which we evaluate classical music. That's not entirely wrong, but this line of thinking also kind of misses the point What makes any exemplar for any art form good, what makes it Pulitzer-worthy, is not whether it lives up to the standards of another genre, but whether it succeeds by the criteria of its own practitioners. The makers of hip-hop do not necessarily seek to imitate the makers of symphonies. They work with different techniques and in different languages. Now, I say all of this to say that in the interview you're about to listen to, we actually don't talk about Kendrick Lamar or the Pulitzer Prize at all. But also, we kind of do. And I should say hello again. I'm Will Robin, and this is my podcast, Sound Expertise. My guest for this week's episode is the musicologist Lauren Kajikawa, an associate professor at George Washington University. And he's thought a lot about hip-hop's role in American cultural life as a genre that is immensely popular, but also still deeply misunderstood and not fully recognized by many musicians, in part because it's held to a false set of standards. Last year, he wrote a fascinating and provocative essay titled The Possessive Investment in Classical Music, Confronting Legacies of White Supremacy in U.S. Schools and Departments of Music, which has really helped shape my thinking on the Pulitzer stuff. It addresses what kind of music has belonged and should belong in our most elite artistic institutions. Because here's the thing. If you go to a major American university and sign up for a basic Music 101 class called something like The Fundamentals of Music, there is something they don't tell you about, something missing from the course's title. The concepts that you learn, rhythm, melody, harmony, form, they're present in all musical genres, but the way that you learn those techniques, reading Western notation, learning to label chords, understanding binary and sonata forms, is deeply linked to the genre of classical music. 
the course should probably be called The Fundamentals of Western European Classical Music. After all, you're not going to learn about how to make hip-hop beats or write pop songs or Indian ragas. But it's not. It's simply called Fundamentals of Music. A single genre comes to stand in for all genres. And we can push this idea a bit further too, which is what Lauren does in his essay, that this isn't just an issue of musical genre, but it's also about how genre is intertwined with race and racism. Our music schools were founded as elite institutions designed to exclude non-classical music in an era in which elite American institutions were designed to exclude non-white people. And if we want to unwind or begin to think about unwinding that deeply ingrained connection, we have to start talking and thinking about how we got here and how we can teach music differently. And so that's what I'm going to be doing today, right now, with Lauren Kajikawa on Sound Expertise. You use this phrase possessive investment in the title of the article. Can you talk a little bit about like what that means outside of classical music, what it means within the kind of argument you're making? Absolutely. So I, I basically, my, my title, the possessive investment in classical music is a riff on George Lipsitz's classic book, uh, the possessive investment in whiteness in which he explores the ways in which white people benefit from identity politics. Uh, So, in all these ways that whiteness is not named, uh, but yet operates uh, in in U.S. society historically. And one of his main case studies is the housing market. Mm. And so he looks at the way FHA loan practices, and especially sort of the GI Bill and other other basically socialist um, redistributive practices to help the middle class in the United States expand in the post-war period, the ways in which those those lending practices benefited white people and that the way that racial segregation allowed for the accumulation of wealth for property values to go up in, in, in all white or majority white neighborhoods and therefore uh, and that people of color, especially African Americans were, were, were excluded from right. these large economic gains so that um, yeah, and, and so his, his he, he Lipsitz himself is also borrowing from Cheryl Harris, who's a mm-hmm. legal scholar who writes about whiteness as a form of property. And sure. So that, so that, um, so anyway, I wanted to think about how those, how those ideas could be then applied to the institutions, the kinds of institutions that I, I and our colleagues are working in that have a history of what I, what I see as sort of a processes of accumulating accumulating capital, accumulating um, a kind of investment in a particular repertoire, right? Mm-hmm. Because for, since the, fa- you know, for the last hundred years or so, since modern schools and, and departments of music have, have existed in university campuses, for the, you know, the first um, 70 or more years of, of that history, classical music was the only kind of music deemed legitimate and worthy of, of, of teaching. And so departments acquired instruments, they acquired faculty members who specialized in, certain, in those particular kinds of music, and, and a whole set of um, research and curriculum uh, cohere around that, that project in ways that are, that are racially exclusive. And so then, right. t- so today when we look at universities and say, well, th- you have a school of music, but what you really mean is you have a school of this particular narrow, narrow type of music. Sure. 
and and the reason why it's difficult to undo those inequalities is because there is an investment, right? There's a possessive investment in a particular kind of music, a particular repertoire, a particular way of making mm. and understanding music that is tied to a racially exclusive legacy, and yet it's it's um, it's often not seen that way or, or, or that, that those facts, the, the sort of power relations and the history of exclusion has been so baked into the institutions. Uh, they've been so repressed, that history is so repressed that, um, in, in our daily operations, we often forget that those inequalities are there and that we're living that's with the, this legacy. So that's the, 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 uh, the colorblindness thing, I yes. think, which I, I want to come back to, but yes. I mean, I didn't actually think about the word investment, um, and maybe you pointed out in the essay and I missed it, but like investment, almost you're thinking kind of like investment, like money investment in a yes. way, right? It's, yes. it's like a hundred years ago, schools invested in, I don't know, instruments or mm-hmm. Beethoven scores and parts for their orchestra library or like a bunch of biographies of Mozart. Yes. And that like when they accrued those resources in the same way that something like the GI Bill or the housing market or the New Deal, right? Like those are racially exclusive things designed to build wealth for the American middle class, but they're actually designed to build wealth for the white middle class. And this is a kind of analog within classical music. I I would say so. Or within Um, these schools. Yeah. 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 And it, it's self-perpetuating. I think that's the other dynamic. And so, and in ways that, that don't always call attention to the racial exclusivity and the Mm -hmm. history of the history of unequal power relations and discrimination. So for example, when, decisions are made, um, in the present about, you know, where are resources in a, in a school going to go. And, you know, even in, I think one of the examples that I use in the chapter is the incorporation of new forms of, of music that are taught. So just like I teach a class on the history of hip hop, sure. uh, jazz departments have certainly grown and, and, and done well in, in some institutions, but there's a whole new crop of, of, courses that have been taught in the last couple of decades from the you know, history of rock and roll, history of hip hop, history of the blues, a variety of world music classes. Those classes are popular with students. Uh, they fill up and they bring in tuition dollars to, to mm. departments of music. But the decisions then that are made administratively don't redirect that money to the teaching of hip hop or the teaching of rock and roll. These are kind of like the extracurricular classes. Yeah. They're they're seen as sort of the, the, as, as general education as not central to the mission of the university. And so I think that that investment is renewed, uh, Mm. you know, in the same, and and is self-perpetuating in this, in a, in a way that's similar, I think to people who say, well, I just want to live in a good neighborhood uh, Mm. with with good schools. Mm -hmm. We were just talking about this. Yeah. So I I want to, I want to live in a good neighborhood with good schools. People don't, most, most people don't say I want to live in an all white neighborhood or or a predominantly white neighborhood. It's just where, where are the good houses? Where are the good schools? So it's this unmarked category. That's the, I mean, that's the colorblindness idea. So like when you say good neighborhood, you're bracketing what you don't say, which is a neighborhood that is populated by members of the upper middle class who are often white. white. Yes. And that's and, and, and a neighborhood and it, right, and a neighborhood that, and, and it exists in that form mm-hmm. because of a history of, of exclusion. And so your not just your Juilliards, but your university of, I don't know, UCLA's and your mm-hmm. Midwest music schools, these all have a kind of unmarked racial category around I mean what is and this gets back to maybe the historical component of the essay like 
what is the relationship between classical music and whiteness historically in the mm-hmm. United States? Mm-hmm. I mean, why why do you need to mark it? Because like, how did it be? How was it unmarked? And how can you draw out the kind of clear markedness of the of the whiteness of that, and the exclusion? It's a big kind of a multi part thing. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, I mean, the the best work. To, I mean, I draw on all, in that in the chapter. I draw mm-hmm. on. Lawrence Levine's classic highbrow, sure. lowbrow, and you know where he traces the, I think, traces back the founding of a lot of contemporary um, music and art institutions that we still live with today to the late nineteenth and early twentieth century. Mm-hmm. So these are relatively recent institutions, given the think like, the 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 age of of the United States. Sure. It's really only the last hundred, you know, hundred yeah. or more hundred so years that that the institutions that we live with today were really, really founded and, and, and continue to exist. And so that's a period of mass immigration uh, from Eastern Europe, from Asia, and a lot of anxiety that, that Levine notes amongst the upper class uh, who were feeling like the America that they knew, uh, the culture that they knew was slipping, was in danger of slipping away from them. And that founding uh, these institutes of high art, whether they were art museums, parks, or concert halls, the, the control over those spaces and and what was celebrated as high culture or culture with a capital C in those contexts mm-hmm. was a part of a a kind of exclusionary impulse to sort of say this is what uh, to, to kind of control and to discipline. The, the unwashed masses uh, of the time, and so I think in that in, in that way, that's that's the origins really of our institutions are founded in a kind of uh, exclusionary impulse to say this is what to, to legitimate some forms of, of culture and mm. and exclude others, and so I, I mean I think that's the, the history. You can go all the way back to the founding of these institutions and 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 find sort of these deeply problematic impulses and legacies that we're still living with today. The, the institutions that we that we work in today are different in many respects, but some of the institutional inertia, like the, the, the reasons why we're slow to change, are often, I think, tied to those original sure. impulses in a variety of ways. So, like, I mean, to go back to the investment, the idea of resources, like, yeah. most music schools operate, and, you know, we can talk to, and I think it's worth talking about, that we sure. have, on the one hand, kind of, like, conservatories like Juilliard, mm-hmm. music schools within larger universities like my own school, University of Maryland, and then liberal arts departments of music. Each of those have their own issues, but like most of them have an orchestra as a kind of like operating unit. And that probably goes back, if it doesn't go back a hundred years, it probably goes back to when these schools started amassing these various kinds of resources. And that has a certain orientation. Um, you're articulating an argument about genre too, right? That seems mm-hmm. like fundamental right that it's not like it's not just about a classical music conversation anyway it's actually about like other forms of music making are not deserving of universal greatness which is maybe the concept you want to get rid of entirely but like i mean i I, you you bring up this point which which is one that i hadn't really clicked in my head which is like we have these classes called quote-unquote musicianship which is kind of like music theory 101 Mm -hmm. and that 
is an unmarked category, which is basically learning how to do classical music, right? Yes. Like learning, it's not just learning about rhythm or harmony or melody, which are the tools that transcend genre, but it's about learning about them through like eventually learning how to read notation. Um, mm-hmm. And we don't necessarily think about the fact that actually musicianship can mean learning how to make hip hop beats, which is, I mean, as you know, because this is your, and this gets to your research, right? You are a scholar of of, of rap and hip hop. And I literally have your book sitting right here Um, (laughs) in case we need to refer to it. Uh, Sounding race in rap songs by Lauren Kajikawa. Uh, So genre, right? So this idea that there are other ways of making music, like how does that relate to this, this concept? Oh, well, I think you, you, you actually raised a couple of really important, important points and thanks for, yeah, thanks for reading the chapter. Uh, so carefully, uh, I think that uh, what you said was absolutely right, that we have courses that are unmarked in terms of race and genre, uh, yet they really do teach a set of skills that are most relevant and sometimes only relevant for understanding particular bodies of music, Mm. right? So um, what is taught in, in a lot of, or, you know, I think the vast majority of musicianship and and sort of music theory courses tends to be the tools that you need to get you to the place where you can then look at a um, you know look at a sonata movement sure. and understand what's happening and those are powerful tools for being able to understand like uh, harmonic progressions and you know development and recapitulation and all of the great things we can talk about in sort of you know the common practice period but they're not. Um, necessarily what musicianship would mean to a, like you said, a hip hop producer uh, um, or even, you know, you go outside the U S you know, a gamelan composer um, from Bali or, or, or Java. And I, I think that there's a way in which, yeah, our, uh, our curriculum pretends to be, it has these sort of universal sounding names yet um, very, uh, but in, in practice are actually very particular mm-hmm. in, 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 in their focus. And so I think a really, uh, if we wanted to think about what it would mean for us to live up to our names as schools of music or departments of music to really live up to that title, I think we need to start thinking more broadly about what things like musicianship mean to different populations um, and, and, and give our students the chance to really see the world, um, of creativity in a, in a broader, in a broader sense, you know, right. and I think that would free them. I think it would free us to be able to not only appreciate other forms of music <clears throat> and support other forms of music. Um, but I think it would lead to a lot of, you know, creative, uh, you know, kind of reinvigorate, I, I think creative practices and lead to things that we can't necessarily hear, you know, at, at this moment, but that I think are being, um, restricted in some ways by by the narrower conception of music that we that we live with. Yeah, I was really struck um, since I was reading. I've been reading, and I'm only still about a third of the way through your book. Um, like that, it seems like a good example of how you're thinking about this. Where you in the maybe throughout the book, but certainly in the opening chapters, you mm-hmm. transcribe um, mm-hmm. the sound of early hip hop songs um, by Sugar No Sugar Hill Gang. Yeah, yeah. Compare. Um, mm-hmm. The Sugar Hill Gang's Rapper's Delight and a uh, 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 live recorded DJ right. routine by Grandmaster Flash um, and, and his four, at the time, the, the four MCs before they were the Furious mm-hmm. Five. And you're, you're quite emphatic when you do these transcriptions that you say most 
transcriptions of hip hop songs, rap songs have used Western notation to convey the musical meaning in a text. When I say transcriptions, I mean, you know, basically like a written down version of what the music sounds like. And you basically invent your own, I guess you invent your own method to do it. Right. So like, why, why, why did you need to create a different method to evaluate the musical content of these songs? Because I wanted a form of transcription and musical notation that explained the musical and artistic priorities of the practitioners, right? Of mm-hmm. the of the DJs at, at the time. And a DJ like Grandmaster Flash wasn't sitting there with staff notation in front of mm. him writing out what he wanted, what sounds he wanted to come out of the speakers when he was at his turntables. His his materials, his compositional materials were pre-recorded records, right? Commercial, commercially released records. And he would put them on his turntables and manipulate them. And so that the, so, uh, and look for particular parts of those records, you know, that he called the break breaks or break beats. Uh, and as they've come to be known, and he'd find those sections of the records that he liked, that he thought dancers would want to hear that would be good for MCs to rap over that would basically sound good to his audience and he'd isolate them and use two copies of the same record on turntables to loop those sections that he wanted to, to isolate and repeat. And so I developed a, a way of transcribing that practice that took those breakbeats, those sections of the records that he was working with, as the fundamental like musical unit. Um, mm. that, that, and, and so I think it, it, it actually, and I've had, I've been, it's been really nice to hear from a couple of practicing DJs who have read my book that, that the transcription really makes sense to them. That's that it, really it, yeah, interesting. Yeah. That it really captures how, you know, th- what they're doing in real time as they're performing. So in, this in a way, is yeah. when we talk about this category musicianship, right? Yeah. This is what you're taught. This is another form of thinking about the concept of musicianship, right? right? If right. we transcribe early hip hop songs in a manner that doesn't actually reflect the practices of these working musicians and how they conceive of their music and also how they like evaluate their music, presumably. Right. I I don't think any hip hop musicians look at all these detailed transcriptions to evaluate which piece is better. I mean, piece, right. I'm using the wrong word. Uh, Which song is better than another song um, or which performance is better than another performance. That's value. Those are values that are kind of intrinsic to a different genre, which is classical music and has its own kind of parameter for evaluation too. Right. Mm -hmm. I think, I think so. I think so. And I mean, you know, it's not that I don't think that I've invented some like comprehensive system or it's not the last, it's not sort of, um, it's not perfect and it's not going to work for every, purpose that someone might use when they want to analyze how hip hop's put together. But it, it allowed it, 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 I think just like any form of transcription analysis, it, it served the purpose that I needed it to serve at the time. Right. You, you, you have to find the right, in my opinion, you really have to find the right tool for the job. And, and that's and, kind of yeah. like an ethnomusicology almost way of thinking of like you develop a system that is, makes sense for a culture and is specific to it. Oh, absolutely. Very much so. Did you, like going back a bit, did you start knowing you wanted to study hip hop? Like in back way back? Or like, are you? I mean, there's like a, I can imagine one trajectory, and I, I didn't do enough research to figure out which one you mapped up to, and we might have talked about it. Like yeah. one trajectory is maybe like you were like an oboist who like <laughs> fell off the path and became like a musicologist, <laughs> and then got jaded, and then became a hip hop scholar, and then like there's the other path, which is kind of like maybe that was always your interest, and you studied cultural studies in college, and then 
like how did how does how does your research kind of map onto your trajectory? Because um, I also like when I was reading the the possessive investment essay, I was also thinking like this seems like it probably comes from someone who has been in these places for a long time, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, no, good question. I'll try to give you the Reader's Digest version. <laughs> so, no, my background is not as an oboist or another um, classical music, um, you know, uh, n- another like conventional sure. instrument that I, that I, that I rejected and, and went, went down the other path for. Uh, I actually was an ethnic studies major, so like my concern has always been with questions of race, politics, and, and power, mm-hmm. and I ended up doing, uh, as an undergraduate, this pretty big undergraduate research project. I was lucky enough to be uh, part of, I, I was at UC Berkeley, okay. and they have this great undergraduate research program called the Haas Scholars Program, uh, where they take um, juniors and seniors who want to do research at the undergraduate level and pair them with faculty mentors and get them started on a pre- uh, give them money and support so that they can actually conduct research. And so I got a grant to be able to fly um, to visit musicians in New York, uh, the Boston area, Los Angeles, and of course in the Bay Area to interview Asian American jazz musicians about their experiences. That's oh, cool. yeah. So How then, did you make the pivot to, to hip hop? Yeah. So. That was just because that's the music I grew up listening okay. so to. So this is this and, is a lifetime. Yeah. It is a lifetime thing. It's just it's the music that I probably just know best in terms of. And, and I, you know, I went to grad school at UCLA, which especially at that moment when I joined um, in two thousand one was my first year in graduate school. They were super well known as being, you know, one of the uh, top and one of the one of the only, but but also one of the top graduate programs in the country for people who wanted to take a musicological approach to popular music sure. studies. So um, I was really interested in, in, yeah, but I thought, yeah, I thought maybe the Asian American jazz thing was going to get expanded into a dissertation. But then I was in a seminar, uh, one of Robert Walter's uh, seminars on popular music studies. And I said, I'm going to write about hip hop. I mean, I had grown up in a, I had kind of, I was born in 1975. So it's just like the whole history of hip hop is basically like the soundtrack to my, <laughs> to my, you know, to my, my, my coming of age. And so, yeah, I, just to make a long story short, I just took the opportunity to write seminar papers that then, that, that, um, that I think were successful enough and that were interesting to me enough that like, Oh, maybe I'm, this is something I can contribute to musicology. Right? Sure. This is a perspective that hasn't really been re- represented before, and, and I the, can help do that. The perspective, it seems like one of the, and you share with me some some recent stuff that you've been working on too, like the, the book is called Sounding Sounding Race in Rap Songs, mm-hmm. and the, the word sounding seems particularly important in terms of you are making a, a strong case for and this goes back to the transcription thing we were talking about and also really goes back, I think, to this like musicianship as a category maybe. Um, w- w- sound was a neglected category within hip-hop studies or something that wasn't treated as strongly as lyrical content or maybe other parts of the culture. Can you say more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's where I was at a, again, part of my graduate training was in a, was in a department whose motto practically at the time, uh, I mean, it wasn't inscribed in the wall or anything, but I think it was sort of, you know, all about the tunes, right? This was a, a program that was very much about what can sound itself, what can sort of the music itself, to use that phrase, tell us, at, you know, if we, if we were to treat it as historical evidence, what is it telling us? And I think hip-hop and rap music 
especially because it came of age in a time where, you know, the music video starts to become invented and, or become a really important medium for, for getting the music out there, that a lot of attention was paid to visual elements and, of course, to lyrics because MCs were the stars of the genre and not as much attention to what the, the work of the producers, what, what you know, the, how they're putting the beats together and, what, and how those beats contribute to the image and, and the, the ideas that artists are trying to, to, to present you know, in their music. And so really the genesis of the book was driving in L.A., which is a very common practice, um, being in the car and listening to music and hearing Eminem's My Name Is, which came out in 1999, but they were still playing it on the radio in you know, 2001, 2002, and just having this epiphany that there was something about this beat that, that was different and that I thought was really important and significant to Eminem's success as breaking through as like, you know, the, the first white artist since Vanilla Ice, right, to, to sell a bunch of records and, and, and really be successful commercially and also get respect in the genre. And so I, I wanted, to, and I thought a lot of that had to do with, with not, not just his music video, which was also part of it, um, or his lyrical skills, but also the beat that Dr. Dre had produced for that, that single. And so that was kind of the origin for like, there's, there's something going on here. There's a way in which this beat is playing on his racial identity that I, I need to, I need to understand. I need to work out. And then, then, and then from, and that ends up being the last chapter of sounding race. And so I ended up working backwards from Eminem, like the moment that hip hop beats can sound whiteness well, to sound whiteness, it's, you know, whiteness is always defined in relationship to, to what it's not. And so I sort of like, so by 1999, around 2000, you know, Eminem and Dr. Dre come up with a way to sound white racial identity through hip hop music. And I wanted to work back from there to understand, well, then how did it, how did hip hop come to sound blackness in particular ways? So there's a chapter on public enemy, um, via run DMC and then, um, uh, Dr. Dre, well, Dr. Dre, and and then also, of course, like the original, the origins of, of hip hop as a genre of recorded music with the Sugar Hill Gang and, and Rapper's Delight. So, how are you? How how have you been figuring out how to kind of put the theories into practice in terms of how you teach, and also like in terms of how you conceptualize like pedagogy, big big P pedagogy. Great question. Uh, I can talk about a couple of things. Some of them are at my older institution at the University of Oregon, where I was for eight years before moving to GW. And I think in both that prior position and my current position, I've been really fortunate to have been given free reign, at least for some of the classes that I teach, to teach whatever I want to teach. So I think anything that I say, any ideas I come come up with and, and talk to you about, I think it's important to note that, that I'm in a lucky position, unlike a lot of our colleagues who um, are tasked with teaching courses that are on the, on the books and they don't really have the freedom to invent a new course or add a course to the curriculum. And so I think part of it comes from being in departments that have at least valued what I can bring to the table and have had, you know, had, uh, have given me that opportunity. So um, I, since the beginning of my teaching career, I've taught a course on the history of hip hop and that's been, that's been a course that I teach every year. And so I've been able to really emphasize um, 
that, and of course it's not just, we're not just looking at song lyrics. I'm really, I mean, I spend the first part of the class really emphasizing what it is that DJs were doing in the 1970s and how that laid a musical foundation for everything that comes after. Even when people are making beats on their phones or tablets or laptop computers, the logic of what they're doing ties back to what DJs did with vinyl records in the 1970s. And so I really, for me, that's the fundamental musicianship component or theoretical component that students need to understand how, you know, what, what hip hop producers are doing. And so I've been able to put that into practice through that class. I was also fortunate enough to have a PhD student at Oregon, uh, Sean Peterson, who was working on a dissertation on the Soulquarians, sort of the D'Angelo, you know, Questlove and the Roots, um, Erica Badu, uh, a number of artists in the late 90s who were really kind of recording on each other's projects and, and forming this sort of movement, some, you know, associated with neo-soul and, and hip-hop in that, in that era. And so Sean was a, and still is, a, a you know, talented uh, jazz bass player and composer, in addition to being a musicologist, and so I had floated the idea to him that wouldn't it be cool to have a school of music ensemble that was modeled on the roots because he was doing research on the roots. That's awesome. And I was like, well, you know, it's a, it's a, it, for those listening that might not know who the roots are, they're a live, instead of having a, a producer or a DJ producing the beats, they're basically an R&B setup, and, you know, bass, keyboards, drums, uh, and, and guitar, and they make hip-hop beats using traditional instruments, right? But they sound, if you if you weren't li- really listening carefully or thinking about it too much, they developed a sound with live instruments that really mimicked the aesthetics, like the rhythmic feel and the timbre, the characteristic timbres and, and rhythms of, of uh, sample-based hip-hop. So, which isn't easy to do. It's so a this kind is of, a way to basically create a kind of like... Within the context of music school, we have all of our ensembles, and this will be a hip hop ensemble. Yeah, almost, yeah. So right? we basically create we created a hip hop ensemble, and what was great about it was it drew students from the jazz program, from the classical, you know, music side, and then some students who weren't even music majors, who were, you know, who were MCs, or you know, maybe were they played or they played traditional instruments, but they weren't they weren't music majors or they weren't involved at the time in any music classes. So this becomes almost like the kind of like meeting space yes. for all of these different ways of, of the musicianship category kind of. In, in yeah. Second, yeah. And so they started off doing covers, but then they did freestyle sessions where they would, where um, the group would improvise a beat. The MCs would freestyle and they would write songs collaboratively together. And so they had a bunch of original songs. They even recorded a, an EP uh, and I think it's available even on iTunes uh, they end up calling themselves the Illiquips. So they, so it was almost like it, it was part ensemble, part they made a band. And, so and yeah, it was really successful. Starting an ensemble, teaching a class. I mean, these are kind of individualized solutions, but we're also talking about this. I mean, you're arguing yeah. it's a systemic problem, and I think that's probably the right way to view it. So like the the system what is the systemic solution we can institute these ensembles and a lot of schools of music i mean plenty of schools would push back against it because of all of these investment right is it burning everything to the ground and starting over <laughs> like what what's the idea i think actually one of my colleagues asked you this when you gave the talk and i think um she meant it uh, uh both generously and confrontationally but it's it's both a generous and confrontational question which is like what does the ideal way to teach music in 
both a liberal arts university and a music school, two kind of separate but related things, look like? Do we just need to, like, do these ensembles and classes at scale, or do we have to have bigger conversations? I mean, I think the answer bigger conversations and every academic one, they always want bigger conversations too, right? But I, you know, I think there's no one size fits all solution. So I'm going to, I'm going to wiggle out of this question by, by saying that I think it really, it's, it depends on where you're at. Everybody's at a different kind of institution with different politics. I don't think I can, I don't think I can invent like a, a solution for that. It's going to work for everybody. But philosophically, I really do believe that we need to shake things up that we need to get out of the boxes that that and the silos that we've become accustomed to and, and entrenched within and so I think for departments and of music that are on university and college campuses that have um, that have that kind of diversity of interests and expertise the one thing that I think any music program can do is start thinking about who are the people that we're not collaborating with, but that are that are here and might want to collaborate with us? Who are the students that are already here paying tuition, but are not, but but we are not accessible to them? We don't have anything for them to participate in music, and that the solutions can really come out of just like, can we stop doing the same old thing? And I think there. Are, the other thing I've learned working at you know for a decade now in in higher education is that there are musicians everywhere on campus, not just in music departments. So there are people in anthropology, in American studies, in physics, in all of these departments across campus who really are into music and play music. And I, I think that sometimes the narrow specialization of conservatory style thinking, uh, where there's a particular level that you have to play at, and there's a particular repertoire that our students need to know, also blinds us from some of the cool things that we could be doing. Um, it's just... Uh, there's so much more, so many different kinds of things that, that, that could be done that, that aren't being done. Great. Rather I, than, yeah. I think I mostly, mostly agree. <laughs> thanks. This was really great. Oh, thanks so much for having me. This was, this was really fun. Many thanks to Professor Lauren Kajikawa of George Washington University for that great interview. I've got two book recommendations for you. Definitely check out Lauren's great book from a few years back, Sounding Race and Rap Songs. And if you're interested in reading the essay that we talked a lot about today, The Possessive Investment in Classical Music, it was published in 2019 within a larger collection of fascinating essays titled Seeing Race Again, Countering Colorblindness Across the Disciplines. Links to all that stuff and more over at our website, soundexpertise.org. For more on this week's show, you can follow me, Will Robin, over on Twitter at SeatedOvation. And you should absolutely check out the work of our incredible producer, the composer D. Edward Davis, on SoundCloud at Warm Silence. You'll definitely want to tune in next week for a discussion of timbre, 80s pop, and yes, the music of Top Gun and Sonic the Hedgehog with music theorist Megan Lavengood. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, and please tell your friends, tell your friends, tell your friends' friends, tell your students, tell your parents, tell your parents' students, and your students' parents'. See you next week.